now to the study of the book of 2 Kings. As I said last week, 1 Kings and 2 Kings were actually one book. But for the sake of length, too long, they chopped it up into two books. Now, after listening to 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you will get pretty much bewildered. So many kings, about 40 kings are named. Their names are often so similar. Because there's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom, you have, and in the reign, in the fifth year of the reign of such and such a king, such and such a king now appeared in the other kingdom. And then later in the reign of this such and such, another king appeared in the other kingdom. So it's so confusing. There's a northern kingdom, there's a southern kingdom that names one after another. It sounds so repetitive sometimes, like, and they he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And that's repeated like so many times, right? So when we read all this, what do we get out of this? So at the end of this book, I hope you will say, wow, this is a beautiful book in a beautiful book. Now, kings are very important in those days because kings were absolute monarchs. They made the law. They could change things. They didn't worry about the law. They were the law, right? And so it's like, leader is so important a good father blessed family bad father struggling family good pastor strong church bad pastor bored struggling church same with companies so leadership is so critical but kings were really like the absolute leader now what was god's criterion for the king what how did god judge the king like, is it talent? Is it ability to conquer more land? You know, is it his morals, his behavior? Those are not important to God. What was primary to God was, if you watch how God analyzes, how God assesses each king, he has one basic criteria, that they worship, trust Jehovah God alone. Now, for many of them in Israel, they worshipped Jehovah God. And three times a year, they went to the temple, joined all the festivals, worshipping God. Then the rest of the time, basically, they had their little gods. God on the hill, God of the grove, God of the high place. They were basically shrines everywhere. That was part of the religious scene of that part of the world. Little idols and little houses put on this hill, put on that tree, put on top of a pillar, right? They come by different names, but basically they were little idol shrines. Okay. God just wanted the king to say, we trust one God to provide all our needs. So different from the average king, the average Israelite, said, yeah, God is a big God, but then we need little things like, you know, rain God, you know, a little thing for fertility God, uh, another one for health God. There were gods of this hill, gods of that 
realm of their life. It's very much like Christians today. For many Christians, we would say, yeah, we worship God. Of course, we trust God. I mean, how else can I have eternal life? For eternal life, we trust God. For happiness, uh, maybe we trust something else. For security, uh, maybe my degree, my job. You know, for health, uh, maybe my understanding of health food, my pills, my supplements. We have little gods that take care of the, the other things of life, but eternal life uh, is still that God. Same thing. What God wants us to know is this. One God takes care of everything. He is our all in all. So that was what God was looking for in his kings. Do they trust in him alone and remove all the other idols from the land? Like us, do we remove the other idols? Well, idols can come in many shapes and sizes, just as all kinds of different idols, fish idol, monkey idols, you know, all kinds of idols. And we also have idols in all shapes and sizes, okay? So that basically is how he judged the kings, how he judges us today. Now, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, let's just look at it since there's so much talk about the north and the south. The northern kingdom obviously was bigger, 10 tribes, right? Southern kingdom with two tribes. Northern Kingdom was richer too because the soil there was more fertile and also the trade routes between the continents went through Northern Israel, not Southern Kingdom. Okay, The Southern Kingdom soil was not good. There were no trade routes, more dry, dry soil, dry land. The Northern Kingdom spun very quickly into idolatry. They didn't have a temple because Jeroboam had built two golden cows, one in the south part of the northern kingdom, Bethel, and another golden cow he put in the north part, Dan, so that the Israelites didn't need to go to the kingdom of the southern kingdom for the temple. So he was like giving them an alternative religion. The Golden calves were like the first sin that Israel committed after Sinai. Aaron built the golden calf, right? And Moses was so angry, he threw the tables of the law on the ground. This golden calf is not Aaron's invention. Actually, it is a very common god, Egyptian god. The Egyptians had a god like that. Many people have a god of a bull. A bull is always a picture of strength and virility, right? It produces baby cows which produce milk. So, Bull is always a sign of prosperity, right? And the bull god was very much a fertility god and linked up to all the other fertility gods of that part of the world. You see, that's why they had temple prostitution. They believed that if male, there were male sodomite prostitutes, male prostitutes in the temple, another male comes and have sex with this male. And in the temple, that will stimulate their gods the gods of the rain, the gods of the wind, to get into action, stimulate them, and then more rain and more uh, fertile land there will be. That's how horrible their religion was. So the cow god was really a very symbol of a fertility, prosperity god, bull market, right? Today we have prosperity gospel, just a new version of it. You know, it just doesn't come in a cow shape. The Southern Kingdom didn't spin so fast into this type of worship because there was a temple there. And they took a longer time to reach the same level of idolatry as the North. Okay? 
Now, the Northern Kingdom too was more violent than the Southern. The Northern Kingdom, there was no kingly line, no promised line. So kings grabbed power, right? Whoever could kill the prevailing king became the next king. So there's a lot of assassination, coup d'etats, very violent. Southern Kingdom, it was the line of David, one after another. So there was no palace killing and coup d'etats, much less, right? So there's a difference between the North and the South. The North, the North spun down into uh, into road of no return much faster than the South. Okay, now there are so many kings you can't remember them, but let's just remember two names. Okay, maybe the number one wicked king of the North, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel. The number one wicked king of the South, Manasseh. Okay. These are just two names, otherwise you'll never remember the 40 names. Now let's look at who are the stars in this book of kings. You would think, well, the stars would be some king with really a lot of write-up about him. No, interestingly enough, the two stars in each book, one star in 1st Kings, one star in 2nd Kings, were not kings. They were prophets. Elijah in 1st Kings, Elisha in 2nd Kings. Now, Elijah, as we have seen in 1 Kings, he was raised up by God to confront Ahab. Ahab was such a wicked king, he promoted Baal worship or Baal worship. And so Ahab was called by God, I'm sorry, Elijah was called by God to confront him. So he went before Ahab and confronted him. He said, call out your prophets of Baal. They're fakes. And he told the children of Israel, you decide who is the real God. Don't have no two opinions, Jehovah and Baal. You decide today. And so he called the bluff of the prophets of Baal. He challenged 450 prophets to send fire down on the, on the altar. And you know, Baal couldn't answer because Baal is not the real God. It's an idol. So that was the job of Elijah. If you look at New Testament, he's mentioned again in New Testament as a type of John the Baptist. <laughs> All right. In Matthew, you can take note, Matthew eleven fourteen, and Mark 9, 11 to 13. He is mentioned that he is the type of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was also called out by God to confront the, the Pharisees, the fake religion of the time of Jesus. He calls them hypocrites. Wow, that was a strong guy. He's a wild man, John the Baptist. So was Elijah, a wild man to stand up. So when we see the prophets in the Old Testament, in the book of Kings, who were these prophets? What was their job? Today we have this word prophets, very popular nowadays in Christianity. Oh, my church has a prophet. He can really tell you your future. He can really say, he had a dream last night. He told me, you know, he saw this golden tree and then, you know, the tree had fruits. And you know what it is? One day you will be a preacher who will have a lot of fruit in your life. You know, I have people telling me this kind of stuff, right? You know, the prophets today are Foretellers, foretelling. What 
the world likes to hear called fortune telling. They tell you your future. That's really not the prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah, Elisha, and really later we're going to look at the book of the, of the prophetic book, 17 prophets there. And all the 17 prophets, where were they doing their job? At this time, time of the kings. This era we are studying at. Though we see the book very separated from the book of kings, prophetic books, all right, all the prophetic books, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those books, those prophets live at the same time as these kings. And what was their job? Telling the future? Very little of it. Most of their job was warning the king. Not of the future, of the present. How dare you do this? What are you doing? Do you know what God is? Do you know God is angry with you? Prophets are used by God to warn. Okay? Not fortune telling. Forth telling has the guts to tell forth the truth, which most people don't. How dare you tell a king what's wrong? Are you crazy? Right? So that was the job of Elisha, and that was first Kings. Second Kings begins with Elisha, and it says a good chunk of Second Kings is Elisha, more on him than any other king, right? And Elisha was more like a type of Christ. Seven miracles attributed to him. John the Baptist, no, no miracles. Christ, miracles. So Elisha is more a type of Christ. He even raised the dead, Elisha, right? And so we see two people prominently featured in the life of the kings are prophets. Now, interestingly enough, you don't see many priests or Levites, <laughs> all right, in this entire book. Actually, God had raised up a whole tribe of Levites and priests from the tribe of Levi to be the guide for Israel, to be the ones that tell them when they go off the track. But they were too close to the kings, too close to the establishment to be able to stand apart and warn. Simply put, Right? Their, their credibility, their status, in fact, their money came from the establishment. Right? And it's very difficult to speak against the establishment when you're part of the establishment. Right? So God had to raise up people outside the system, so to speak, the prophets, to come and warn these kings while the priests were silent. The Levites were silent. You don't hear a squeak from them in these books, okay? It's very much like today. You know, they're kind of what we will call full-time career clergy who do all the nice things, say the nice things, not to offend anybody because it might affect their income, their livelihood, right? So it's the same thing. Once in a while, God has to raise up somebody from outside the system to come and shake up. The sister to foretell what God wants people to do. Okay, so many prophets were raised up to speak and warn the kings, and we will study later in the prophetic books. But the era is the same era, right? They were used to warn. Now, so as the kingdom spun downwards, 
the Northern Kingdom much earlier, in 721 BC, they had reached a stage of no return because there was this wicked king, right, called Ahab, and then there was a stage of no return. So Assyria came in, besieged the capital of the Northern Kingdom, Samaria, and then brought them into Assyrian captivity. Now what happened to these 10 tribes that were taken out by Assyria? Not Syria, Assyria, okay, different, different country. Assyria is part of the land, that we call it Mesopotamia, the land that originally, the land between the two rivers of Tigris and Euphrates, the land where Abraham originally came from. Abraham came from Ur. And now the Assyrians take these people and bring them back to Assyria. They captured the Israelites, bring them back to Assyria. All right, one big circle from Abraham came out and went right back in. What happened to these 10 tribes? They are the lost tribes of Israel. Where, where did they go to? <clears throat> the Assyrian style of captivity was like that. When they went and conquered the city, they make sure the city would never rebel. So what would they do? They take the smart people, the leaders, the skilled people, the craftsmen, and they take them out. Leave the, 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 you know, the bottom of the barrel left, who don't give them any trouble. They're just barely surviving those poor left. The good ones were taken out, and the Assyrians would then scatter them within their kingdom. A few here, a few there, a few there. And so these ten tribes were scattered all over the Assyrian kingdom. And because they were so small groups scattered, they lost their identity over time. They lost their language, they lost their religion, they lost their culture. They soon became immersed, assimilated into the Assyrian culture. And nobody knows where they are today. They're called the Lost Tribes. Okay? Then the Assyrians would send in their own people into the captive, uh, into the land they just conquered. In this case, they sent Assyrians to Samaria. And these Assyrians who went into Samaria would then repopulate that place called the conquered place. But the Assyrians were always superstitious and afraid. They still had this idea of local gods. For them, gods were a god of a region. So now I'm no more in Assyria. I better learn the way of the god of this land. And so when Assyrians went into Samaria, they learned a lot about the beliefs of the Israelites. So today there are Samaritans still in Israel, not many, in Samaria, who are actually Assyrians transplanted into Samaria and believing the Torah. They believe very much what the Israelites of the past believed. Except, you remember the Samaritan lady when she met Jesus said, you say worship is in Jerusalem. We say it is in here, right? In their own place. That's the only difference. The Samaritans and the Israelite religion is the same. But one went to Jerusalem to worship and one said we worship in Samaria. And basically, they took the religion of the northern kingdom. So that's what happened to the 10 tribes disappeared and a new tribe came in, you know, and when Jesus was around, you remember the story of the Samaritan, right? So that is this group of people. Now the southern kingdom took longer 
to go to reach the level of no return when God has to then allow enemies to come in and finally the Babylonians came in and besieged Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem and then the southern tribe was taken out to exile 140 years after the northern tribe. So they were spun in the same direction, they just slower going down to the level, to the stage of no return. Now the Babylonians, when they conquered, they had a different style from the Assyrians. They conquered the, the, the uh, Israelites or the Jews in the southern kingdom from Judah. And they took the best and the brightest again, the same way. Why would I take the junk, right? They, they left the junk behind. They took the brightest and they brought them to Babylon, but they left them as one community. So they preserved their language, they preserved their religion, they preserved their culture. And after 70 years, they went back. So that is now the Jews of today. They are from the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom disappeared. Lost tribes of Israel. I hope that helps you understand a little bit. Okay? So that is the end, as it were, of this long line of kings. We read them slowly spinning down, spinning down, spinning down until they become so horrible and the God says, just let them go. I brought them in to clear the evil religion of this land, the evil practices of this land, to clean evil out. Now they are as evil as the ones I asked them to clean, so I might as well get rid of them. So they were brought up into captivity. So the story ends like that. It sounds pretty sad, right? The siege was so terrible. I don't want to describe it because then later we're going to start the book of Lamentations. In the book of Lamentations, you see the horror of the siege. Unbelievable. That had been predicted. God had warned them, if you continue this way, you will, this is what will happen to you. Eat your children. You will cook your children to eat. And all the horrible things happened in the siege. But we will study that in the book of Lamentations. It's enough depression in this, in this book already. Okay? But I want to end with a little understanding of the character and the goodness of God. Right? He's good in judgment, yes. But you know that sometimes makes us a little bit sad. I want to show you the story of the worst king of the southern kingdom, Manasseh. Manasseh was so evil that God said, because of this man, this is it. The Babylonians will come and take you to exile. Let me read how evil he was. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 21 describes how evil this man is. 2 Kings chapter 21, reading from verse 2. And he, that's Manasseh, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars of Baal and made a grove as did, as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, all the stars and moons and sun and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. 
and he made his son pass through the fire. He offered his son as a burnt offering. He burned his son up and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards, witchcraft. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove which he had made in the house. Wow. He put an image in the temple of God. Wow. And he was taken into captivity. Manasseh. But let me show you in 2 Chronicles. I'm sorry I'm jumping a bit because it's so exciting. In 2 Chronicles, what God did to this horrendous king. I mean, you can honestly cannot imagine a more wicked king than this. Literally rebelling in the face of God. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 11 to 13. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Syria, which took Manasseh among the which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. So he was brought in chains to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him. God listened to him. And heard, God heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Wow. What kind of God do we have? What have we learned of God in this book? This man rebelled against God did everything he should have done, led a whole nation into captivity. And then what did he do when he was in captivity? He humbled himself. He prayed and said, God, forgive me. I'm sorry, God. And God took him right back. Brought him back to his kingdom. Can you believe this? Is that a heart we understand? Can I forgive someone who is against me, against me, year after year, did everything, and then one day he comes and says, Pastor, I'm sorry. I just hope I can grab it. Wow. So this book is so awful. It goes just king after king, just bad things, bad things. You know, it's almost like, do we have to go through this, God? I, I, you know, I listened to this for like three hours on audio. You, you get tired. You get bewildered. You get tired. You get depressed. But you know, you come to the last chapter of this book. Right? Can I encourage you now to turn to Second Kings 25, the last chapter and the last four verses. So depressing, this book. When you come to this last four verses. 2 Kings 25 verse 27 it came to pass in the 7th and 30th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 7th and 20th day of the month, that evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift 
up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, out of prison. And he spake kindly to him, set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments. And he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king, a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. And this is the end of Second Kings. What an ending! King after king did horrible things, brought the kingdom of God, brought the name of God to shame, and then the last part of this horrible, depressing, bewildering book comes this little passage. This king is in captivity. And one day the new king comes up and says to him, Come out of your prison. Change your clothes. You will eat with me every day. You will be above all the other kings here. Like what in the world? The faithfulness of God. He had said that to David, your throne would be established forever. He looked at the kings who were all wiped out. The kingly throne, the kingly lines, history finished in Babylon to be forgotten like the northern kingdom. All those kings, northern kingdom, we have no idea who their descendants are. But the kingly line of Judah, David's royal line is preserved. And 1,000 years after this, or 500 years after this, amazing. Joseph and Mary from the same line produce our King Jesus. Wow. What do you see about God in this book? Now, what about the king's character study, the king's, you know, and stuff? No. What do you see about God? I see a merciful God. Amazing. <laughs> you know, people can do horrible things to him and just in the deathbed could say, Lord, forgive me. And you know what? God saves. I cannot believe it. But my own life is like that. For years, I rejected God, I mocked God, and then one just one day on my hospital bed, I sat there and asked God forgiveness. Here I am, grace of God, mercy of God, promises of God stand forever. They look like they're gone. Look like God forgot. No, never, never. Promise, faithful to his promise, full of mercy. What else do we learn about God? Standard of God. It's very simple. It's not about your brains. It's about your talent. It's about your projects. No, it's about your heart. Do you believe one God? The all-sufficient God to take care of all your needs for eternity and now. Your emotional needs, your health needs, your every need, family needs. You don't need all the little gods of life. One God. That's what God measures. When we stand before God, the last shall be first. You'll be surprised. The simple person who never in our mind did anything great for God will be right in the front. Because that's how God measures. 
God remembers sin too. Jeroboam led people astray. The sin of Jeroboam is mentioned over and over again. You know, there are Christian leaders of the past who led Christianity astray, brought idols into the church or whatever, brought pagan festivals into the church, and they go on and on and on, will be remembered. Right? Not well, but badly, like Jeroboam. Okay? That's also what we learn about men. There's a lot of things you can learn in this, but ideally God. Let's just, the sideshow, what do we learn about men here? The longer men have an institution, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. Companies get run down, kingdoms get run down, everything runs down. It doesn't get better. The kings, after one after another, you thought you'd get better and better, more practice as a king, you become a better king. Opposite happens. Devolution, not evolution. You leave men alone long enough, they run down. Right? Corruption runs down, morals run down, everything runs down. Okay. Another lesson, good kings don't produce good sons. Solomon produced a fool, the wisest king. Hezekiah produced Manasseh, you know. Grace doesn't run in human blood, in human line, right? Grace is from God. So I hope this has helped you understand most of all what a wonderful God we serve. Amazing. What a merciful God. What a faithful God. And I hope today you see the book of Kings on its bewildering, but a beautiful chapter in a beautiful